Well, today is Father's Day, and uh, I'm reminded about a young boy who was asked if he knew what Father's Day is. And he said, I, I sure do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like Mother's Day, except you don't have to spend as much on the present. <laughs> and all the fathers said, Ugh. You know, Dad, sometimes we kind of get a kind of get a bum rap. Kind of reminds me of uh, uh, Keith and Kevin's dad. Keith and Kevin were um, two elementary boys who, uh, twin, twin brothers, who came home at the end of the school year begging their parents uh, for permission to, to, to take control of or charge of um, the, the pet hamster that the classroom had. They wanted to bring the hamster home. The hamster's name was Davey, and uh, they, they wanted to, to take care of it. And, and mom just wasn't having it. Mom didn't think that was a good idea, and she explained to the, to, to the boys, to Keith and Kevin, that, you know what, I know what's going to happen. You're going to bring the hamster home, and, and then I'm going to be the one who ends up taking care of it. It's all going to be on me, and, and you guys aren't going to be responsible. And, and Keith and Kevin begged and pleaded with mom, and, and finally she gave in, and she said, okay, you can bring Davey home, and he'll now be our family pet. And so they did. And for the first couple weeks, Keith and Kevin, and they had a sister, they, they worked really hard to take care of Davy, making sure that the cage was clean and, and, uh, and the animal was fed and, and all those good things. But, but you know how it goes if you've been a parent. After a couple of weeks, they kind of lost interest. And so mom took over. And that went on for a little while, and mom, mom was frustrated. This wasn't how this was going to go down. We had a deal that the kids would take care of the hamster, and I wouldn't have to. So finally frustrated, everything she had tried to get the kids to take care of Davy didn't work. So finally one day she walked into the living room and, and she said, um, children, I, 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 we're going to need to get rid of Davy. I found a new home, someone who will take great care of him, and uh, we're just going to do it. And, and the kids were confused. They didn't understand. She said, it's just become so much work. And it's too much work for one person. And, and, uh, and, and Keith chimed in and said, is it because he eats so much? Maybe we could find a way to feed him less. And, and Kevin said, is it because he's kind of smelly? Maybe, maybe we could try to keep him cleaner. And, and mom just said, no, you've, you've had your chance. It's time for Davey to go. The kid shrugged and said, okay. I went back to watching their TV program. So mom left and she went and she gathered up Davey's cage and, and all, the, you know, all the accessories that go with taking care of this hamster and, and walked back into the living room. And when her kids saw her walk through the living room, they said, Mom, what are you doing with Davey? She said, we just had this conversation. I found Davey a new home. And the kids said, Davey? We thought you said Daddy. Dads, we sometimes get the short end of the stick. And sometimes our families are more willing to tolerate the family pet than they are us. So why do we do it? Why do we continue to wear the title dad? I, I think one of the reasons is because no matter how unfortunate it can be, there's just something about watching your kids get it. When they finally nail down their free throw form, uh, when, when they've watched and watched and helped and helped, and now they can change the oil by themselves. When they do their chores without being asked to do them. I'm still waiting on that one, but maybe some of you have experienced it. When it clicks, 
when the things that you've invested and poured into their lives take root and you go, yeah, that's why I do it. I have, many of you know I have a son. Uh, his name is Zeke. And uh, Zeke and I had this little exchange that we do from time to time. And, and I'll say, uh, hey, Zeke, you know you're my favorite son? Which is kind of a ripoff because he's my only son. Ripoff for him, I mean. And, uh, but that's okay. He knows what I mean. And he'll look at me and he'll say, and Dad, you're my favorite earthly dad. And it's in those moments that I go, he got it. It's clicked. He understands that he has a heavenly father who loves him. And then even though his earthly dad messes up, he has a perfect heavenly father. And when my son says that, when he reminds me that, that I'm his favorite earthly father, that I'm his only earthly father, which also makes me his least favorite earthly father, but in those moments, I choose to remember that Zeke's heavenly father chose to make me Zeke's earthly father. You know, and this is true for all fathers here today. God chose you to be the father to your children. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't just a, a combination of, of DNA merging. God chose you to father your children because there's strengths that you have that God wants you to pass on to your children. He chose you in spite of your weaknesses, in spite of the things you do poorly, in spite of the baggage you carry around, or maybe because of all that. He chose you to be the dad to your kids because God has a shape that he wants his kids to take on and you can shape them and you can form them in the way that he wants. You can shape this young boy to be a follower of God. You can shape your daughter to love Jesus. This isn't an easy thing as any dad who's serious about his role would tell you. It's a, it's a lofty calling. It's tiring. It's exhausting. And sometimes it seems like we miss the mark more than we hit it. But you know, of all the fathers in this room, uh, I would say none of us has quite the daunting task of a specific father from the Bible. He too had been given a child to raise. God chose him specifically because of who he was. But the son he was raising was no ordinary boy. You see, God had chosen Joseph to raise God's own son. Can you imagine that, men? I mean, your kids are pretty incredible, no doubt. Not as cool as mine. And I hope you would say the same thing to me, right? But none of us are going, uh, I've got God here. And I've got to raise this young boy to know his heavenly father. Wow, Joseph had an incredible job. And so I wonder, why did why did God choose Joseph? And what can we learn from the life of Joseph that will help us dads and, and, and men who are preparing to be dads to do our job for the glory of God? I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. It's uh, on your notes. It'll be on the screen. Uh, the best way would be if you brought your Bible to read it right out of there. But follow along as I read from Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. 
His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a just man and didn't want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him to do. He took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and they gave him the name Jesus. So maybe you've never thought about this before. When we think about the Christmas story, it's not often Joseph that we think about. But on this Father's Day, I want to pause and think about this. This man, Joseph, changed God's diapers. It's the man, Joseph, the father, Joseph, who helped the one who created the universe learn how to walk. He maybe taught him to read. He taught him the family trade. He built into this young boy, Jesus, a character that would point him back towards his heavenly father. Somehow, Joseph had the task of teaching God how to follow God. It's mind-bending. But just as God shows Joseph to father his only son, God has chosen you to father your son and your daughter. And so let's look at Joseph's character. Let's see who he was and, and see what it was that stood out and, and, and why perhaps God chose Joseph to be the father to his own son. Matthew begins to paint a picture for us of who Joseph was. Truth is, we don't know a lot about Joseph, just the few verses here that we read and a little bit into the next chapter, and then Joseph disappears from the story. But we can get some hints about who he was. We first encounter Joseph in verse 18 where Matthew writes, listen again, Jesus' mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. So what we know about Joseph, Joseph so far is he's somewhere between the age of 13 and 30. This was marriageable age for a, a Jewish man. Uh, I've said before that Jewish young women could be married at 12, typically, um, but for, for men, once you hit 13, you could be given in marriage. So, so Joseph was somewhere in that range between 13 and 30. There's three stages to Jewish marriage that, that things tend to flow through. There's the engagement. We would hardly call it engagement because of the way we do engagement. We might call it the contract making. This is where parents of the, the groom and parents of the bride would, agree, would make an agreement on how this was going to go down. You know, Their son was going to marry their daughter. There would be a, a dowry paid. Uh, in, in Jewish culture, they wrote up a contract, they called it a ketubah, and that would outline how everything was going to work. That's the first step, the engagement. The second step of the marriage process is called the betrothal. The betrothal would typically last about a year. It was between the betrothal that the, uh, the groom would go and uh, prepare a place 
for his bride. Typically, that meant he would add a home onto his father's home, or we might say the family compound, and and begin to prepare for his bride's arrival. During this year of betrothal, the, the man and the woman are legally married, but they're not allowed to enjoy the benefits of marriage. And so to end the relationship in the betrothal year takes a divorce. See, they're legally bound to each other. Now, there's several reasons why a divorce could happen. Um, the, the, well, I should say why marriage or betrothal would be dissolved. Um, the first one is, is through death. If one of the partners died, then obviously the betrothal is dissolved, and the remaining partner is free to marry again. There's no shame in that. There's, uh, of course, perhaps pain and grief, but, uh, but from a community standpoint, uh, there's, there's nothing to be held against them. Uh, but there could be cause for divorce. And there were several causes for divorce, but the most uh, devastating one was sexual impurity. If either of the partners, especially the female, was found to have been sexually impure before the third step of the process then divorce would happen. And usually for a divorce to happen, what, um, the way it would go down is the, the guilty party, the accused party, and their family would be drug out to the village gate where the elders of the village sat. And there would be a, a trial of sorts that would try to determine what was the nature of the sexual impropriety. Why did it happen? Whose fault was it? Uh, was someone seduced? Was someone raped? Did someone prostitute themselves? Now, divorce could be had for other reasons, but sexual impropriety was the worst. All other divorces that could be had during the betrothal could be done quietly. Signing of a paper, it didn't require a public trial. It was less disgraceful. And so that's where we find Mary and Joseph. They're in this stage of betrothal when Joseph gets word that Mary is with child. Okay, so she's pregnant. Her baby bump has started. And Joseph only has a few options at his disposal. He can continue on with the betrothal, not, not saying anything or making any accusations, which would lead people to think, the rest of the village to assume that he was also sexually unfaithful. He could, uh, he could drag Mary and her family through a public divorce, public divorce, drag them to the village gate, go through the trial, and bring shame and disgrace to Mary and her family. He could find another way to divorce her. He could come up with another reason why the betrothal had to be cut off, something that wouldn't be quite as public and as embarrassing. Of course, even with that option, though, the baby's not going anywhere, right? And so either he's still going to make her look bad or he's still going, people are still going to assume that he's guilty. So what's he going to do? What's Joseph going to do? Verse 19 tells us what he was thinking. Because Joseph, her husband, was a just man and did not want to expose Mary to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Catch what Matthew says about Joseph. Because Joseph was a just man. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read verse 19, I'll be honest, just isn't the first word that comes to mind. 
I think looking at Matthew's options and seeing that he's considering divorcing her quietly so as to not bring shame and disgrace to Mary's name and her family's name, I think that's an incredibly compassionate thing to do. Matthew could have called him compassionate. That's showing a great amount of mercy. Even generosity, because had Matthew broken off the marriage publicly, Mary's family would have been required to pay back the dowry, but Matthew doesn't do that. I mean, Joseph doesn't do that. Matthew could have called him compassionate, merciful, kind, gracious, but he doesn't. He says, Joseph was a just man. He had every right to drag Mary before the village elders, to expose to the whole village what he believed she had done, to demand a repayment of the dowry, and to clear his name. But he wouldn't do that. Because he was a just man, he looked at someone who needed to be protected, who needed to be looked out for, someone who couldn't look out for themselves, who couldn't protect themselves, and he said, I'll do that. I think at this point, he didn't know what to make of Mary's claim that you know, this, this baby came from God and was conceived by the Holy Spirit. By, at verse 19, when he's debating a quiet divorce, he has no idea what's going on. That's, that, that, that maybe seems like a wild claim and, and uh, you know, like, a, like a, an excuse from a young girl who's been caught red-handed. But Joseph's concern wasn't himself. It wasn't his own reputation. His concern was Mary. His concern was someone who couldn't take care of herself, who couldn't defend herself. And he wasn't, he wasn't going to harm someone else to protect himself. He wasn't going to trash someone else's name to defend his own reputation. He was going to do everything in his power to defend the powerless around him, which I think is why Matthew calls Joseph a just man. Not only was Joseph a just man, but he was a devout man. Notice again verses 20 through 24. But after Joseph had considered this, that is, divorcing her quietly so as not to shame her name, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. And you, Joseph, are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Joseph was considering, how do I protect Mary? She can't protect herself. And so I need to do that. And how do I do that? And in the midst of that, God supernaturally speaks into the equation and says, I want you to do two things, Joseph. First of all, I want you to take Mary home to be your wife. I told you there's three steps to the Jewish marriage process. There's engagement, there's betrothal, and then there's marriage. And that's uh, when the wedding takes place. And we've looked at the Jewish wedding previously. But essentially, in this, in this dream that, Moses, or that Joseph had, whew, God said, I want you to skip through the rest of this betrothal period. Just go ahead, cut it short, take Mary home as your wife now. Jump to, state, jump, jump to step three, be her husband, make it official. And the second thing that, that the angel told Joseph to do was not only to take Mary home and skip stage two, 
but to name the boy Jesus, which to us perhaps is, is um, you know, just something you do. You name a child after it's born. But by instructing Joseph to name the boy Jesus, God through the angel is saying, I want you to take on full responsibility for this boy. Adopt him as your own. You are taking responsibility to be his father. And so what did Joseph do? He had this dream. An angel appeared to him, said, marry her now. When the baby is born, adopt him and call him Jesus. And what did Joseph do? Verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him to do. And he took Mary home as his wife which is absolutely incredible. I don't know if we can feel the weight of that decision. But when Joseph woke up, he said, forget about the quiet divorce. Forget about what this may cost me and my reputation. I'm going to obey the Lord. And the next morning, I imagine he walked across the village, spoke with Mary's father, and they were married. And that was it. They were done. It was official. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but I imagine for me, if I'd have woken up from a dream like that, I probably would have spent my morning shower trying to convince myself that uh, it was just a dream. I'd eaten a bad falafel or something the night before, and, and uh, I'll go consult my pastor and try to figure out what I'm supposed to do. But not Joseph. He knew he had a word from the Lord, and he knew he had to obey. And like I said, we don't know a lot about Joseph. Joseph kind of fades from the story not too long after we read about what happened here. But we do know enough about Joseph to know that this was his pattern. Joseph always obeyed without delay. As soon as he could keep the word of the Lord, he did. Let me, let me show you why I can say with confidence that, that Joseph was devout, that he was obedient. We're going to put some verses on the screen. I'm going to ask you to read the blue parts. This is from Matthew chapter 2. When the Magi had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. He said, Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And then just a few verses later, after Herod had died, Joseph and Mary and Jesus are now living in Egypt. An angel of the Lord appeared to, to, in a dream to Joseph and said, For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. Now again, I don't know about you, but if I'm Joseph, I get to Matthew chapter 2 in the story and I'm going... All right, when is enough going to be enough? First, you wanted me to risk everything, my reputation and my livelihood and who I was to take home this woman who said she was, you know, it, it wasn't her fault. She didn't know how it happened. And, and, and then I adopt the boy, and you want us to move to another continent. And then you want, to move, want us to move back home to the neighborhood? When is enough enough, God? But not Joseph. Every time the Lord told him what to do, he obeyed. Right away. No delay. As soon as he got up, he did what the angel had said. Regardless of what came, he was committed to his heavenly father. He was going to be devout and faithful to God, come what may. 
This week I read the story of a farmer who was experiencing a bumper crop. And he needed a bumper crop because the farm, family farm was in debt. And if, if this harvest wasn't overflowing, they were going to lose the farm. But thank God it was. And it looked like there was going to be enough to pay off the debts and to allow the family to survive until the next farming season. Things were looking good until about a week before the harvest was to be collected. A freak hail and windstorm ravaged the crops. Young boy said he remembers uh, the day after this happened, standing with his dad in the field, expecting his dad to be uh, cursing and crying. And instead, as he looked at his dad, he heard his dad whispering these words. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. When that boy grew up and became a man, he said the most powerful sermon he had ever heard was when his father whispered those words looking out over the devastation of his farm. His father had committed to be faithful to God no matter what. Joseph was a just man, he was a devout man, and he was a faithful man. So uh, Joseph obeys the angel, he gets up, he takes Mary home to be his wife, and now they're legally married. Now they can enjoy all the privileges of marriage. But notice what Matthew writes, verse 25. But he had no union with Mary until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. So even though he had every legal right to consummate the marriage, Joseph knew that God's intention, God's desire was that it would be clear that this baby that was going to be born was not of Joseph. And so Joseph did nothing to send any other signal. He wouldn't consummate his marriage with Mary until after the baby was born because he wanted to be faithful to God's desire and God's intent. Not only did he want to be faithful to God's desire for this marriage, but, but Joseph also wanted to be faithful to God's design for marriage. And so we have a sense, reading between the lines, although it's not that difficult, that when the time was right, Joseph and Mary did consummate the marriage. Mary didn't stay a perpetual virgin. Joseph and Mary enjoyed the full benefits of marriage. When we read Matthew 13, verses 55 and 56, here's what we see. Uh, Jesus is with a crowd, and they're amazed at what he's able to do. And this is what the crowd says. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Catch that? Is, who's the carpenter? Okay, right, right. So th apparently they've forgotten Joseph's name. He's long since um, disappeared from the story. But isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all of his sisters with us? So clearly they came at an appropriate time where Joseph, Joseph and Mary understood that it was now time to be faithful to God's design for their marriage. And they had other children. That's, that's pretty amazing that Joseph waited until the time was right and, and then was faithful to God's design. But I think even more amazing than that is the list here of Jesus' brothers. Notice a couple of the names. For example, the last one on the list is Judas, also known as Jude who wrote a book in the New Testament. Can anybody guess which book it is? <laughs> Good, you guys are still with me. Yeah. Joseph's youngest son wrote a book in the Bible. 
so did his oldest son, biological son, James. James didn't just write a book of the Bible, by the way, called... Yeah, that's right. He didn't just write the book of James, but James became a leader in the church at Jerusalem, the mother church of all churches. James was part of the, uh, the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 that, that made the, the mission to the Gentiles possible. It's because of James, or at least James played a role in the fact that we can sit here today because they said it's good for the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to go to those who aren't Jews. Not only was James a scripture writer and, and the pastor at Jerusalem and, and part of this incredible church council, but he was called James the Just. Does that sound familiar? Do you remember verse 19? Because Joseph was a just man. See, we don't know a lot about Joseph. He, he really does kind of fade out after Matthew, Matthew chapter 2. At some point, apparently, Joseph died. But we know enough about his character, enough about his fathering, to see that years later, when the crowd had long forgotten his name, they knew his character because it lived on in the lives of his children. He was faithful, he was devout, he was just. There's an old story about a young boy who was playing in front of his uh, father's lazy boy one day, and dad was in his recliner reading the newspaper. And at one point, dad looked at his son and said, son, I want you to go get ready to go to Sunday school. And the young boy looked up at his dad and said, dad, are you going with me today? And dad said, no, I'm, I'm not going with you. And the boy kind of frowned and thought for a minute, and he said, dad, when you were a boy, did you go to Sunday school? And the dad said, I sure did. I did. I went to Sunday school every week. Now, I want you to go get ready, please. Get ready so that when your mom's ready to go, you can go to Sunday school. As the boy plodded down the hallway to his room to get dressed for Sunday school, he said, I bet it won't do any good for me either. See, men, our children, their lives are going to reflect who we are. Our character is going to be passed on to them. When our Heavenly Father looked at Joseph, he said, there's a man of character. There's a just man, a devout man, a faithful man. I want him to raise my own son. And I believe when God looked at you, how many ever years ago it was, he said, there's a man who I want to give a son. I want to get a daughter. I want to bless them with these children so that they'll raise him, so that he'll raise them to know me, to love me, to serve me. As a dad, I can say that, at least in my experience, I miss the mark a lot. And maybe, maybe there's some dads sitting here who say, you know what, I miss the mark a ton. Pastor, you don't even know the beginning. The good news is that our Heavenly Father gave you your children knowing who you are and knowing the work that he wants to do in you and through you. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the great news is that the very same power, the same person who raised Jesus Christ from the dead is alive and is living in you, dads, helping you to father your children, helping you to, to raise your children to serve and follow Jesus. And it's not an easy task, and sometimes we get the short end of the stick, 
but we can do this. With God's help, we can raise our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren to know and to serve and to follow Jesus. Would you bow and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the example of Joseph, a man who was just, who was devoted, who was faithful. Father, I ask that you would continue to create uh, the character in me that, uh, that pleases you. Lord, I pray that as I father my children, you would help me to pass on to them character that honors you, a desire to, to follow you and serve you, to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And Lord, I would pray the same for my brothers here. Lord, for the men who would sit among us today and who would say, you know, truth be told, I'm not doing anything to raise my kids to know Jesus. We don't read the Bible together. I send them to church and maybe go occasionally. They hear me say Jesus Christ, but it's not in a good way. Lord, I pray for the men who would be among us who know that they're missing the mark. Lord, I pray that today your Holy Spirit would speak to them, that you would remind them that you gave them their children for a reason. And that regardless of where they've been, regardless of what they've done, regardless of what their fathering has been up until today, Father's Day 2018, that it can change today, that you can make them whole and forgiven, and that you can empower them to raise their children in a way that honors you. Lord, for the men who have, who have been slogging it out in the trenches day in and day out, Lord, I pray that you would remind them that you chose them, you called them. And although, although they may feel inadequate, although we may miss the mark, that you've given us the gift of your Holy Spirit to empower us for this job of being a disciple maker. And Father, for the men who may be looking back with uh, satisfaction, with joy, I pray that they would revel in that. They would thank you for helping them to raise children who are serving you. And if they look back and they have regret, Lord, I pray that you would speak into that, that you would fill that regret up with your hope, and that they would look at their grandchildren and, and the other young men around them and other young women around them as opportunities to be a disciple maker. Father, we thank you that you are a good, good father. And even when we fall short as dads, even when we perhaps don't have a father in our life, that we have a heavenly father who has promised never to leave us and never to forsake us. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you please stand? And since we are brothers and sisters in Christ, after I pronounce the blessing, if you would return the blessing to me by saying, and also to you. Men, may you know that God has chosen you to parent your kids. May you model for them the good heavenly Father that they have. And may the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit give you peace. Amen. You are loved. Go with grace.